I'm Kat. I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. We're continuing our theme of spies and espionage this month with a Cold War story about not just a double agent, but a triple agent who shared secrets back and forth across the Iron Curtain before being abandoned by the West and written out of Cold War history for decades. He even claimed to have a connection to the former Russian imperial family who were executed in 1918. Uh, this is the story of Michael Golanevsky. Ooh, triple agent. Yeah. Nice. He's a triple threat. <laughs> Michael Golanevsky was born in August 1922 in the city of Nisvis, now a city in Belarus, close to the capital of Minsk. But at the time, it was known as Nishvish and was part of Poland. And we apologize in advance for pronunciations. We've tried to imitate Google Translate as best as possible, but it's hard. Yeah, so although this area of Belarus was only part of Poland from 1919 to 1945 and was occupied by the Soviet Union and Germany during this period, as a child... Golanevsky's family moved to West Poland, and he grew up close to Poland's western border with Germany. Uh, we're not sure where exactly in western Poland the family lived, but it seems to be one of the towns uh, or villages in the area surrounding Poznan, which is the largest city in western Poland. Uh, and it's about 100 miles from the modern-day German border and at roughly the same latitude as Berlin. Michael's father was from Russia, although it seems that nobody is entirely sure where his mother is from. She may also have been from Russia, uh, but we will also touch on that later. He has been described as a sickly child, having suffered from polio, which left him with a slight limp for the rest of his life. And he also claimed to have uh, hemophilia. In 1945, at the age of 22-23, Michael joined the Polish army, and in 1955 he was promoted to lieutenant colonel, although according to an article in The Guardian, he was also a Nazi collaborator. Wonderful. Michael studied law at the University of Poznan, and later went on to complete a master's degree in political science at the University of Warsaw. He graduated from the University of Warsaw in 1956, although we're not entirely sure when he completed his undergraduate degree. Uh, sometime during this period between the mid-1940s and mid-1950s, he also became the deputy of the Govni Zazond Informatsi Wojska Polskiego, also known as the GZIWP, or the Main Directorate of Information of the Polish Army. And I am just pleased I said that in one take. That was impressive. I am very impressed. It sounded impressive, whether it was right or not. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's how you sound. A year after completing his master's degree, Michael Golanewski became head of the Technical and Scientific Department of the Polish Secret Service, making him one of the highest-ranking counterintelligence officers in Poland. The Polish Secret Service at the time was known as the Ministry of Public Security, or the Zuzba Bezpiacenstwa. But to save whatever is left of my dignity and save as offending every Polish listener we may have, <laughs> we will go for the Polish Secret Service. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah. 
Uh, but it seems that Michael Golanevsky wasn't all that loyal to his job and his country. And just a year later, he began uh, spying on Polish intelligence agencies on behalf of the Komitet Gosodarstevny Bezopasnosti, or, known to most of us, as the KGB. Ah, yes. Michael Golanewski had a change of heart and ideology, and he became a triple agent. All singing, all dancing... Uh, sending secrets of the KGB and the Polish Secret Service to the CIA. I mean, look, if you're good at the spying thing, why not just diversify your portfolio? It makes sense. Sure. (laughs) Like, it's good to have multiple streams of income in case, you know, the Russians don't want you anymore. Uh, According to Tim Tate, who authored the book The Spy Who Was Left Out in the Cold about Michael Golanevsky's life and contribution to the Cold War, his motivations were different to most from the Eastern Bloc who defected or became double agents for the West. Here's a very quick basic explanation of the political situation in Europe during the Cold War. Oh boy. Did we say basic because it's very basic? It's very basic. Yeah, so here we go. In the years following the Second World War, Europe became split pretty much down the middle into the Eastern and Western blocs. Yeah, the Western bloc was made up of nations aligned with the USA, also known as the First World, and the Eastern bloc was nations aligned with the USSR, also known as the Second World, with the political boundary known as the Iron Curtain. Those who weren't aligned with either side were known as Third World Countries, Since the end of the Cold War in 1991, the terms Eastern and Western Bloc have been used interchangeably with Eastern and Western Europe, with the boundary following a similar route to the Iron Curtain, although there were many countries outside of Europe who made up the Eastern and Western Blocs during the Cold War. Poland, then known as the Polish People's Republic, was part of the Eastern Bloc and a signatory of the Warsaw Pact uh, aligned with the Soviet Union sometimes referred to as a satellite state of the Soviet Union, but not part of the Union. The other Eastern Bloc countries in Europe, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, and Romania, uh, Albania and Yugoslavia were part of the Eastern Bloc, but Albania withdrew support for the USSR in 1960, and Yugoslavia became a non-aligned country following the Tito-Stalin split in 1948. So, during the Cold War, Poland was under communist control, governed by the Polish United Workers' Party, described by the West as a one-party state, although there were technically two minor parties, and it was politically influenced by the uh, the Soviet Union to the extent that, as Taylor said, it was considered a satellite state. However, according to Wikipedia, because that is the easiest way for us to learn the basic facts about really complicated things like the Cold War. Uh, Poland was considered one of the more liberal Eastern Bloc countries. And it was the only communist country not to have socialist ideology, such as the Red Star or the Hammer and Sickle, on its flag or coat of arms. Hmm. That is Wikipedia's wording, not mine. (laughs) Because that, to me, is conflating socialism and communism. Oh, yeah, that too. I was going to say ideology with iconography. Yeah. Uh, 
Yep. I meant iconography, probably. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So obviously it is a lot more complicated than that. Intentions, tensions had been simmering in Europe long before even the First World War, and especially during the interwar period, which again, we just don't have time to go into. But that's a very, very basic rundown of how things stood in Europe at that time. And there is a link in the show notes to a graphic, which does it sort of explain it very simply, mm. who was what side, where the boundary was. <laughs> uh, according to Tim Tate, who authored the book uh, on Michael Golanevsky, uh, he was unlike other defectors and double agents from communist countries and that he didn't leave because he wanted a better life in the West, but rather he realised that communism as a political system was wrong and that, quote, as a Polish intelligence officer working simultaneously for the KGB to do everything he could to counter it and start working for the West and democracy. Hmm. That's interesting. That's, yeah. So that's what he believed. But yeah, because usually it's the sort of prevailing narrative is that people defected to the West for a better standard of living. Yeah. Yeah. But... Golnevsky wasn't actually interested in working for the CIA because he believed that it had been infiltrated by KGB spies. And instead, he insisted on dealing with the FBI. Interesting. Mm. Weird. Yeah? <laughs> uh, unbeknownst to Michael Golnevsky, he was actually dealing with the CIA, who had been intercepted intercepting his letters under the guise of being the FBI and his information was shared with the British Secret Service. Uh, some sources say MI5, other sources say MI6, possibly both. You know. Same same family. Yeah. Um, the Americans gave him the codename Sniper and the British named him Lavinia but neither nation knew his true identity. As part of his legitimate role in the Polish Secret Service, he made frequent trips to Berlin, which at the time was split between East and West, but the physical border of the Berlin Wall wasn't built until 1961. It was during these trips to Berlin that Golanewski managed to make connections with the American agencies and become triple agent. For the next two years, Sniper slash Lavinia would pass Polish and Soviet secrets to the West. And in just two years, he exposed so many Soviet spies and sleeper agents that he became known as the West's most successful spy of the Cold War. Uh, which is... Impressive. Yeah, that's a, that's a big title to win. Mm. Uh, in 1959, Golanewski informed the CIA, who then informed MI6 that the Polish Secret Service had a mole in the British Royal Navy. This mole turned out to be Harry Houghton, who was also a triple agent, passing on British intelligence to both Poland and the Soviet Union. It's, uh, it's going around, I guess. Yeah. Uh, he also received documents from a naval intelligence officer attached to MI6, who was also spying for the KGB, and its previous incarnation, the MGB. And he then passed that information on to the CIA. Are you keeping up? Yes, yeah, this is a tangled web we weave here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this officer turned out to be George Blake, 
who was born in Rotterdam to a Dutch mother and an Egyptian father who was a naturalised British citizen. He joined the Royal Navy during the Second World War, and soon after he was recruited by MI6. In 1948, he was posted to Korea under the guise of Vice Consul, but it was actually to gather intelligence on North Korea, China, and what was happening in the Soviet Far East, all communist nations at the time. Uh, But after war broke out in Korea, Blake was captured and held in a prisoner of war camp along with other Western diplomats. It was this experience that turned him against the West after witnessing the bombing of North Korean villages by the American forces and reading Das Kapital by Karl Marx whilst he was a prisoner. So Blake, Blake returned to the UK in 1953 and over an eight-year period, he was said to have betrayed the identities of 40 MI6 agents and ruined almost all of the services' operations in the Eastern Bloc. Wow. Yeah. That's... <laughs> that's a lot. That's impressive. Yeah. Uh, he was arrested in 1961 and eventually made a full confession. He was sentenced to 42 years in prison, but five years into his sentence, he escaped from Wormwood Scrubs Prison in London... He was then smuggled out of the UK, into mainland Europe, driven to Germany, crossed the border into eastern Germany, then handed over to handlers who got him into the Soviet Union as a defector. Wow. And he actually died in Moscow last year, 2020. Wow. Uh, Did George Blake, yeah. That's wild. Michael Golanovsky continued to pass secrets to the CIA until January 1961, when a series of events led him to finally defect to the USA. Although he had been passing information about a spy in the Royal Navy since 1959, it wasn't until 1961 that Harry Houghton was finally captured, along with a number of accomplices named the Portland Spy Ring. And that is Portland in Dorset, Southern England, not Portland, Oregon. Or Portland, Maine! Uh, But just days before Houghton was arrested, the KGB discovered that information on the group's activities had been leaked to the West, which led Michael Golanevsky to believe that his life was in danger. Uh, On the morning of January 5th, 1961, Golanevsky and his girlfriend Ingrid Kampf arrived at the U.S. Embassy in West Berlin, and the West finally learned the true identity of their most valuable spy. He was taken to Frankfurt to be debriefed, and the next day he was flown to the USA. On January 7th, the first members of the Portland spy ring were arrested in London. Uh, Shortly after his defection, he was sentenced to death in absentia by a court in Poland, and in July 1963, a private bill was passed in the U.S. House and Senate to make Michael Golanowski an American citizen. That's interesting. Mm. According to Tim Tate, as of 2021, Michael Golanowski had identified more spies than any other agent or defector during the Cold War, and possibly in all of modern history and warfare. The CIA themselves even described him as the best spy the West had in the Cold War. So why has he been largely airbrushed out of all sides of Cold War history? So the answer to that question is kind of a two-parter and lies largely with events that took place just after Michael Golanevsky was awarded his US citizenship. So according to an article in The Guardian, 
which I said is linked in the show notes. The CIA had promised his citizenship and a job at the CIA as part of his defection, mm-hmm. uh, both of which had been provided by 1963. And Golanevsky continued to provide the West with vital information about the KGB and other Eastern Bloc activities, right throughout, like, pretty much from when he got to the US in 61. Mm-hmm. Um, but another defector arrived in the USA about the same, well, at the end of 1961. Um, and his name was Anatoly Golitsyn. Anatoly Golitsyn. Originally from Soviet Ukraine, Major Golitsyn had worked as a KGB agent in the Department of Strategic Planning but after being assigned to the Soviet embassy in Helsinki, Finland, under the name of Ivan Klimov in 1961, he defected to the USA and began working for the CIA in December 1961. By the time Golnevsky had been awarded his citizenship in 1963, Galitsyn had managed to convince leaders of the CIA that he, Anatoly Galitsyn, was the one true defector to the West and all others were quote-unquote bogus. <laughs> Don't know how he did that. Yeah. Or he did. Interesting. Like, but to what end? I don't know. <laughs> it just seems like such a random thing to do. Yeah, and like... Like power, perhaps, but like... Well, how a prestige... Yeah. Just, infamy, notoriety. Just like there's room for two, at, at yeah, least. <laughs> especially since, like, the prevailing narrative of the West has always been that, you know, people were desperate to leave the old, yeah, the Eastern Bloc, the the Soviet Union, and everything like that, and because the Western capitalism is so much better and everything like that. So, why would they then believe that there was only one true defector? Yeah. All these thousands of people that um, we have to remember, people went both ways. Oh yeah, people, went e- people came west, but people also went east. Yeah. But why? How? I don't get that. How they could be convinced that there was only one true defector. Yeah, that, that's just bizarre. Yeah, but, <laughs> but somehow they were convinced of it, and so. Uh, in 1963, the CIA began a campaign against Golanevsky, ensuring that he was distanced from the agency and effectively written out of Cold War history. Yikes. Uh, the CIA terminated Golanevsky's contract with them, which led to considerable financial distress, removed all protection that had been afforded to him, and made sure he knew in explicit detail how much authorities in Warsaw and Moscow desperately wanted to track him down and have him executed. How sweet. Mm. It's like a nasty ex. It's like a bad breakup. (laughs) Yeah. but And he had, I mean, obviously the KGB wanted him executed, but also he had legally been sentenced to death in Poland. So if he ended up back in Europe... Yeah, he's screwed. ...anywhere near... The Eastern Bloc. Yeah. He was screwed. Yeah. Um, memos were passed around other government agencies stating that Golanevsky had lost his mind, even though the CIA's own agents at the times dis- 
at the time disputed that and revealed that Golanevsky was still providing reliable information. But it was no use, and in less than a year, he had begun to lose his grip on reality. Uh, But by the mid-1970s, he had completely lost his mind, accusing politicians of being long-dead Nazis, long-dead Nazi and Soviet intelligence figures or war criminals. Uh, But the strangest claims Michael Golanovsky made linked back to his family's Russian heritage, and led him to become infamous. He claimed to be one of the lost Romanov children. And this is like the second part of the reason <laughs> he was effectively written out of Cold War history. Yeah. So during the Russian Revolution, when the imperial family, the Romanovs, were overthrown, Tsar Nikolai and his wife, Tsarina Alexandria, their four daughters, Olga, Tatiana, Maria and Anastasia, and their son Alexei, as well as a number of domestic staff, were imprisoned in the city of Yekaterinburg, which is between the Urals and Siberia. Um, that's where uh, Dyatlov's party sat off Yeah. From. And you had been there before. <laughs> I know, it's like, I know that name. <laughs> hmm. So on the night of July 16th, 1918, the Imperial family were executed... The bodies were then mutilated to avoid identification and buried in the Koptiaki forest just outside of the city. Rumours swirled all over the world that the family, or at least some of them, had escaped and were living abroad under secret identities. That was a tale for most of the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, one of the best animated films came out of that. Yes, that is true. And if, I'm sorry, but if you do not agree... I just can't be friends. Yeah, no. With anyone who does not agree that Anastasia, the animated film, is a masterpiece. It is fantastic. And that little Al- albino bat, Bartok. Oh, yeah. He's the best. He's he's wonderful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, there's so many films and books and all sorts written about or on based on the premise that at least one of the children escaped. Yeah. And many, many people claim to be members of the Romanov family throughout the 20th century. In particular, there seemed to be a disproportionate amount of people claiming to be Anastasia or Alexei. I wonder if that's because they were the youngest, so, like, people could get away with, like, claiming to be them for longer? That's a possibility, but I think, I don't think that's the real reason. Uh I'll tell you in a minute. Interesting. I've jumped again. But Sorry. You have. <laughs> you, jumped, you jumped a paragraph ahead of me. Fuck. Uh, the location of the bodies remained a secret until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, when nine sets of human remains were discovered. They actually had been discovered years earlier, but the location had been kept a secret from authorities for fear that they would be removed and hidden or destroyed by the Soviet government. Wow. These remains were identified using DNA to be the Tsar, Tsarina, and their three eldest daughters, so that's Olga, Tatiana, and Maria, and four members of their staff. But the bodies of Anastasia and Alexei remained missing. Mm-hmm. And it was not until August 2007 that their bodies were discovered at a bonfire site near Yekaterinburg. So they weren't actually buried with their family. Mm-hmm. 
and then a year later, 2008, they were determined with a high degree of probability to be Anastasia and Alexei. Because they were the two youngest, yeah, you could get away with pretending to be them for longer if you were an imposter. Yeah. But I read somewhere years ago, because this has fascinated me for a long time, Uh and I blame the animated film for this. And that little white bat. (laughs) So the location of the bodies had been known in certain circles within the Soviet Union. Mm Mm-hmm. But the other two bodies weren't found until 2007. So I wouldn't. So, I mean, I read somewhere it was suggested that the reason that these two, there was like a disproportionate number of imposters claiming to be Anastasia and Alexei, was because their two bodies hadn't yet been found. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. The, yeah, the whole Romanov thing also fascinates me. Yeah. It's, that's crazy. Uh, in 1964, Michael Golanevsky began claiming that he was Zarvik Alexei Romanov, the lost son of the Tsar. And when he married his pregnant girlfriend that year, he used the name Alexei Romanov. And his daughter was named Tatiana, possibly after one of the Romanov sisters. Now, <laughs> as you might imagine, this angered and embarrassed the CIA who stepped up their campaign against Golanevsky and used this as evidence for their claims that he was mentally unstable until they could eventually pension him off. Now, obviously, we now know that he could not have been the missing Romanov son, but Golanevsky maintained that he was Alexei Romanov until he died. The Russian prince was known to be a hemophiliac, and Golanevsky claimed that he too was a hemophiliac, although this was never independently verified. Uh, One thing there was no getting around was the fact that all of his papers listed him as having been born in 1922, four years after the Romanovs died, and 18 years after the Tsar's son was born. Bit of an issue there. Just a little bit. (laughs) Golanevsky maintained that his hemophilia was the reason he was able to appear younger than he really was. He also met one of the most famous Anastasia claimants, uh, Eugenia Smith, in New York in the 1960s, and they claimed to recognize each other. Uh, But she later reneged on that and in her autobiography claimed he was an imposter and that she had been the only survivor at Yekaterinburg. Obviously. Which we now know to be absolute bollocks as well. Yes. (laughs) Although what's interesting is even though these two final bodies have been identified, the Russian um, Orthodox Church has never accepted them because the Romanovs have been canonized. Mm -hmm. And the Russian Orthodox Church has not uh, accepted these remains as being the... The, the youngest two. Oh, interesting. Whilst Golanevsky was written out of Cold War history for many years, he gained a following and became a minor celebrity amongst those who believed his claims to be the missing Romanov's son, and features in many books about the family and the various imposters who claimed to have survived the execution at Yekaterinburg. After being pensioned off by the CIA, Golanevsky lived the rest of his life in Queens, New York until he died in July 1993, at the age of 71. 
R89, <laughs> if you believe his claims to the Romanov throne. Obviously. <laughs> Uh, and that is the story of Michael Golanevsky, the spy who would be Tsar and was abandoned by the West. Oh, you know, that took some turns that I wasn't expecting it to. <laughs> I So I remember, because this guy's been largely written out of history, yeah. it, the book The Spy Who Got the Cold Shoulder only came out this year. Mm. And I read this Guardian article. There's literally Guardian article, the Wikipedia page, and a few books that I could get mm-hmm. the previews of on Google Books. Mm-hmm. There's really not a lot written about him. Wow. Um, and so I read the article and thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Because when we decided we would do spies, I was like, well, this is going to be a lot of... East versus West. Yeah. This is what it's going to boil down yeah. to. And so I thought that was it was a bit different uh-huh. that you've got a triple agent yeah. going in a triangle. Yeah. <laughs> but then when I started doing the research proper and I was like, oh, <laughs> there's this shit as well. This 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 guy reckons he was at Yekaterinburg in 1918. Yeah, there's a whole other layer of mm. fascinating stuff happening here. Some seem to kind of posit, and I think this is the 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 book that came out this year, mm. kind of positions it that his claims of uh, being related to the Romanovs came from, if not directly from the CIA, but from like the kind of mental torture that he was put under by them that drove him insane. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. According to, so it's a book, it's called Through Hell for Hitler, which is obviously more to do with Nazi Germany than anything else Mm -hmm. um so this is relayed on the wikipedia page um 1942 vimax soldiers are transiting through lviv in ukraine and they were told that near the town of radom which is um an old polish landowner named golanevsky lived on a large estate guarded by the ss which was the paramilitary wing of the nazis and that he was in fact uh, Tsar Nicholas II. Oh. But stories like that popped up all over Europe. Yeah. But yeah, some sources seem to, to sort of infer that he already had this, this, this idea that he was the surviving Romanov son, and then others seem to point to it being like a planted idea by the CIA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. And yeah, it's super interesting that like there's for all that he did like there's so little sort of information on him now. Mm. So, yeah. And I think that I think there must be so much more to the Anatoly Galitsin situation yeah. than is made public because just doesn't because they said that the whole Western narrative has always been that people were desperate to leave the Soviet Union and the East, the Eastern Bloc in general, yeah. to come to the West. Like it should be a a, so, a selling point to say, like, "Hey, we attract all kinds of defectors." Yeah. So, so how could they be convinced that there was one true defector? Yeah, it sounds more like 
the other guy was like, that guy you've been working with, he's actually crazy and I'm I'm the better one. Let me help you. But so the the book that came out this year was largely researched use or a lot of the research started with freedom of information requests mm-hmm. uh in the UK and the USA. Mm-hmm. So the British Secret Service, uh, MI5 and MI6, have still have files on Golanevsky that they refuse to release via FIO, FOI requests, which they can yeah. do, especially they can cite national security. Yeah. As we talked about in last week's episode, they can cite interests of national security and be like, no, for whatever they just don't want to become public. Mm-hmm. But the reason they give for not releasing this apparently it's just one file left that uh, the CIA may have more, but in Brit, the British Secret Service, yeah. there's one file left, and the reason they don't they won't release it is due to quote continuing sensitivity. Interesting. So, the Cold War ended thirty years this month. It's thirty years since the fall of the Soviet Union or dissolution of the Soviet yeah. Union. December 91. Golanevsky has been dead 28 years. He defected 50 years ago. (laughs) 7 years? 58 years. (laughs) Oh my god. Oh wait, 60 years ago this year he he defected. 61, yeah. Mm. So So continuously sensitive. (laughs) It sounds very suspicious, yeah. but I'm still really want to know what is so continually sensitive. Yeah. Because unless it's something to do with agents who are now in positions of political power, like we say, Vladimir yeah. Putin used to be a member of the KGB, but it adds to that like intrigue and it does that kind yeah. of mythic status surrounding spy stories. It's a, uh, totally. It's like... The more, the more governments refuse to say, mm. the more you then spin out in every direction. Mm. When it could just literally be something very simple, but it just—it's that big question mark of like, well, why? I'd be very interested to know what's in that file. Yeah, no, totally. Which, of course, we'll never find out. No. I mean, not anytime soon. But again, it's like when we talked about Gareth Williams last week, it kind of it all takes away from the fact that he had a very sad life. He was literally driven insane yeah, by the CIA and just spent the rest of his life well, clinically not only, insane. Not only that, but like he did so much work for them. Yeah. Gave them so much information. So it was such a valuable asset for them. And then they just, like, not only did they just toss him out, like, with the trash, they set him on fire. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so, like, brutal. Yeah. No, okay, so he's defected to the US, but where's the US's loyalty to him? 
Yeah. And and the UK because there's something oh, yeah, up with it. The fact them. that the files aren't released. Yeah. Thirty years after the end of the Cold War, they still won't release these files. So there's something yeah. up with it somewhere. Yeah. No. And I it's... I also wonder if there's more stories like his of other oh, I'm sure. Other Soviet or Eastern Bloc uh, spies who defected and then being abandoned. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure there are. And like I think as as we're getting further and further away from the end of the Cold War and not just further away from like the sort of like height in mm. like the sixties and stuff, we're we're gonna start seeing more of those things trickle out. But I think it is gonna be this kind of thing of like, hey, you think you know the story behind this person or this event or this whatever. But actually, there's these other like um, dimensions to it that were kind of swept under the rug. Yeah. So <sighs> I guess we'll just have to wait and see. We will. Tune in to episode 5062 Square Mile of Murder in mm. 50 years to. <laughs> to see what we've learned in the meantime. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Good, good spy story. Yeah, it is. Uh, and with that, uh, we'll, we'll waltz right into our outro here. Uh, we have a sale going on for our merch store. And it's going to last right up until Christmas Eve. So if you would like to get some Square Mile merch and rep us in the streets, uh, you should go to squaremileofmurder.store and use code SPYMAS20. That's S-P-Y-M-A-S-2-0. That code again is SPYMAS20. Uh, and that gets you 20% off of everything. I'm sorry, I just can't go with you saying repping us in the street. Because you, you know, know the kids ain't saying that. They're not. But, <laughs> you know, I'm saying it. So it must be cool, right? <laughs> right? Somebody somebody say, right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so be sure to go check out the store and purchase anything you might want like a nice mug or a tote bag or a whatever uh because our merch store is changing in the new year it's we'll going away you, for a little while yeah it's going to it's going to go down for a bit where and how it emerges from its chrysalis is yet to be seen but we will tell you about that in the future the important thing is Will to you just, just stick to the script for no. once? <laughs> no, never. Um, the important thing is for you to know is there is a sale, SpyMiss20 for 20% off everything at squaremileofmurder.store. Check it out if you want. If you don't want to, you don't have to check it out. Uh, the link is in our show notes or on our website. And, you know, just, yeah, it's there for you. Um, and if you like us uh, and and you want to rep us 
on the internet, you should leave us a rating and review on your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, because Apple owns the world. Uh, <laughs> and do subscribe so you never miss a new episode of our shenanigans in your feed every week. Um, yeah. <laughs> That was Taylor's outro. If you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show with all our side projects, our production company, our trip to the Spy Museum in Berlin, uh, you can join our Patreon page. Tears start at just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes a day early, a shout out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime discount on merch. And that's just for one pound. Mm-hmm. As the tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive stationary merch that you can't buy anywhere. Check all that out at patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder. Links are in all the usual places. Yep. And we will be back next week with another spy story. We sure will. So we will see you all then. Thank yeah. you for listening. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.